0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. In Bavaria, we have a saying Der
1: Junge ist ja total bedient. It means this is the most depressing f-ing kid I've ever met in my life.
0: Look hey. at hey. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we wanted a Celtics-Lakers Finals. It would have been good. It would have been awesome. It would have been good for content, too. But as of recording, we've played a total of seven games in the conference finals, and the Celtics and Lakers are a
1: combined 0-7. What the hell? <laughs> That's a question. The question is, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? You know, um, there's something that's very weird about sports which is you can ride the ups and downs of your team and that makes sense like you're like happy when they win and and sad when they lose but uh, every once in a while you get just pure embarrassment like like if it was your kid who did something really stupid (laughs) and that's how i feel (laughs) <laughs> about my team
0: which is funny because i feel like they were just overmatched and yeah. uh like there's yeah. nothing to be embarrassed about except that like they didn't build quite a good enough team to beat denver but like with us that's <laughs> the fucking oh my god
1: right i'm trying I'm this is how powerful uh, the celtics poor performance is i'm a Laker fan so traditionally a celtic hater and because of my relationship with you, I'm embarrassed. Like it's like <laughs> Four. two it's like two steps away and I still have embarrassment. <laughs> it's been
0: tough. Uh and you know, like you say with some teams you ride the ups and downs, there's also some teams you just find them really frustrating to watch, win or lose almost. <laughs> right. Even though yeah. they're very talented and we like th- I like them all individually a lot. Right. You know?
1: Right. It's, uh, yeah, Al Horford is just a, a salt of the earth. Um, yeah, uh,
0: it, he's, he's salt of the <laughs> earth and can't hit a fucking three-pointer to
1: save his life for, <laughs> for really the last
0: two playoff series.
1: You know, there's a there is a, a point at which it becomes less fun when a win is accompanied by relief rather than joy. Yes. And that's, yeah. That is definitely (laughs) where we're at. Although now we don't even get to (laughs) that. Yeah, now there's not even really. There was part of me that was like, okay, just out of pride, I want to win one. But uh, don't you kind of just want to get it over with? Isn't there part of you that's just like, just lose? Like, it'd just be painful to keep going.
0: There are, yeah, there is definitely a part of me that's like that. But then even more embarrassing. There's the part of me that thinks, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. they win tonight and then we go back to Boston where we, we actually have a losing record in the playoffs, but whatever. And let's say we win that. Now the pressure is on <laughs> Miami for game six. <laughs> yeah. And then like game seven back in Boston. Anything can happen. So like I have and part of that is the Red Sox doing this to the Yankees right. first team to come back from 03. And all of Americans. And I can't help still being yeah. slightly drawn to that possibility.
1: I like you, my friend, who was feeling those embarrassing uh, feelings uh, last night as well, yeah. uh, until the very end, and and then my mind starts doing like, for those who don't know these, who don't know about sports or are not American or whatever, This is best of seven, and it is just a fact that no team has ever come down from being down the three games in basketball, and in the uh, playoffs, in yeah. the playoffs, yeah, yeah, and I, and in my head, I'm like okay, but if we win one, we're down 3-1, and people have come back from that. <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> exactly. <That's, laughs> so, what
1: are thing. we talking about today? <laughs> not yes. Yeah, so I was going to say this is not a, uh, a sports podcast. Uh, In spite it, of the
0: expert analysis we've been giving. Uh,
1: uh, today we're talking about, I don't know how to even define the topic, but authorial intent, like how much does the intention of an author or a group of Uh, artistic creators matter when you're interpreting a work of art so it's a topic that we've touched on a bunch of times but never directly addressed
0: definitely a topic where probably people would have bet a lot of money it was my idea to do this (laughs) (laughs) and it's actually you've been driving this Um, but I, I, I think it's really interesting I think we talk a lot and we I think we we go into interpretations of films, and there's certain assumptions that kind of guide how we do it. But we've never really fully examined them. Yeah, we've alluded to them. We've talked right. about it, but this will be a way to do that um, in more depth. Right. Yeah. But first. But first. The, the first. <laughs> but first. So apparently, I did not. Did you know about this club? <laughs> um, I sir, I did not until you texted or until you put it in the Slack. <laughs> yeah, I put it this I, I tweeted this out that like the the cringiest woke thing isn't cringier than this Club for the Cancelled. It's a New Yorker profile of this club. I'll just read the opening paragraph. Every month more than two hundred people from the media, academia, and other intellectual circles are invited to a private hangout in New York City, which is known as the Gathering of Thought Criminals. That's like in, in capital letters. For that. The gathering of thought criminals. There are two rules. <laughs> there are two rules. The first is that you have to be willing to break bread with people who have been socially ostracized or, as the attendees would say, quote-unquote, cancelled, whether they've lost a job, lost friends, or simply feel persecuted for holding unpopular opinions. Some people on the guest list are notorious, elite professors who have deviated from campus consensus or have broken university rules, and journalists who have made a name for themselves amid a public backlash or who have weathered it quietly. Others are relative nobodies, people who, for one reason or another, have become exasperated with what they see as rampant, censorious thinking in our culture. So that's the first rule. The second rule of the gatherings is that Pamela has to like you. (laughs) Or as I think you put it.
1: (laughs) You have to be uh, jumped in uh, to the gang, and by jumped here, I mean you have to have sex.
0: Third rule of Thought Criminal Club is you have to talk about Thought Criminal Club, <laughs> and you have to complain about rampant censorious thinking.
1: By the yeah. way, your your replies were pretty cringy on that tweet. Um, there were people who who were like defending this as not cringe. I saw. Yeah. I don't know. Like,
0: I I don't know if we covered this with cringe in our cringe conceptual analysis but sometimes it's just you know it when you see it
1: (laughs) you know yeah the gathering of thought criminals is just so self-important that that uh look you know i'm not i'm not an east coast elite so i don't Mm -hmm. read the new yorker (laughs) but it's the way it's written up is just like extra uh, it's so
0: this pamela paresky she organizes it she's named it um And this piece is in some way, I don't know, it's almost like a... You know, debutante ball, pinceanera, <laughs> like this is her coming out to the world. Um, and i just read one of the paragraphs here. One of the attendees brought homemade peach habaneros hot sauce for everyone, and Pareski ordered a round of chicken tenders. She seemed to be in her element. As people introduced themselves to me, she frequently interjected, wine in hand, eyeglasses perched on her silver brown hair, She's weirdly hot, Siskin had observed to me earlier. She's like the intellectual dark web's most eligible bachelorette. Pereski does not approve of this description. Although she is single, she is single. <laughs> She's adamant that the thought criminal gatherings are purely social and not part of the IDW.
1: Uh, of, of which your stepmother is, is, that? Is, 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 is a member. Are we sure there's a distinction? The intellectual dark web would never admit 200 people.
0: Um. Well, it, they invite <laughs> 200 people. Uh, at the, 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 the journalist, Emma Green, who wrote about it, only uh, a dozen people showed up.
1: Right, because they heard it was being like t- like written about. Suppose. OK, so but, but, yeah. but, well, I like
0: all of this. The people I saw were mostly white. Pareski <laughs> says she doesn't really pay attention to the racial <laughs> breakdown of the guests. I, I,
1: I, was that tongue in cheek? Like I, like, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't I, I literally couldn't figure out whether the author of this was was doing thinly veiled criticism.
0: I know. We, this is where we need a, like an, uh,
1: uh, an esoteric or, uh, yeah, we need to know the intentions of the author. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> the point isn't just to mock this. We're going to actually submit our formal applications. Um, but Not before right. yeah. before yeah. before we do, um, being described as weirdly hot seems insulting. <laughs> like, what is the weird part? <laughs> Is it weird because you wouldn't expect that she's hot? Or is it weird because her features, her features when you look at them, don't seem hot, but somehow the holistic take on it is that she is?
0: I, if I had to guess the meaning, it's that she's 56. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Don Lemon got fired for saying something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is going to be part of our application to the Thought Criminal Club. Uh,
1: uh, all right, so that was the idea. The idea is that you and I were we're gonna submit our formal application. <laughs> is there anything
0: I, I just? Is there anything else about the article itself that you wanted to you to note before we get into our application?
1: Uh, like my really biggest question was: Is this criticism of this like because it seemed weird that the New Yorker was profiling it? I, I guess the quote unquote diversity of the members here. By diversity, I mean like what the reason they're invited. Which, like, yeah. ranges from, like, somebody's kid lost in, a, <laughs> in, like, a swim meet to, like, a trans athlete. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, how does she find these people? <laughs> <laughs> Who's da- uh,
0: Kim Jones, whose daughter is a Yale swimmer who lost to the transgender athlete Leah Thomas in competition last year. Uh, yeah, and she apparently is fairly adamant uh, about this. And...
1: and there's a guy who may- might be a rapist. <laughs> To be fair, the guy—the guy that they're talking about, who may or may not be a you know sexual criminal—there's um, apparently no solid evidence either way. But it is funny that the very last paragraph is, uh, Preski, Helen the organizer, clearly being a bit sensitive about this topic. So it says, a few days after the olive tree evening, Prex- Preski texted me, "Quote: No one who comes to our gatherings is an actual criminal," she said. <laughs> but don't. Even criminals deserve to be loved by someone? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've... I I read that last sentence, but I don't think
0: i made it this far. This was part of his argument against the rape accusation. He doesn't... He says he doesn't have penetrative sex with women.
1: Yeah. uh, Is that like...
0: Solid. (laughs) This is Walcott stuff, maybe. (laughs) Right?
1: Mr. W. (laughs) Mr. W. Holy shit. It was a Deadwood reference for those who don't know. (laughs) It gets dark. (laughs) You <laughs> yeah, I know. It really does. That's why I wasn't sure. Like, By by the time you're at the end I'm like So wait Is this This is who
0: I imagine Everybody is Is this guy Who's uh, Like some Actor And comedian who says He's had a hard time Getting a talent manager Because he's a white man And instead (laughs) Has sought out Alternative Media ecosystems He recently acted In a movie called Terror on the Prairie A western about A pioneer family That gets attacked By outlaws Co-produced by The conservative company The Daily Wire Like this is These people are just mad. They didn't get parts, or they didn't get a deal, or they didn't get, you know, uh, the green light to do some project. And it's, so I have to go to the Daily Wire now to because I'm a white man, you know. Right.
1: Yeah. And like, what are the alternative media outlets for his uh, comedy? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, all right. So uh, we have mocked this sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do we get in?
1: Yeah, so I, the the thought here was I'm sure that we qualify somehow, and uh, yeah. so let's let's put our heads together and come up with some reasons, some justified uh, reasons to get an invitation uh, to get the the good housekeeping seal of approval from Pamela Fresco. Uh, well, number one, I think
0: um, just because it's fresh in my mind. Our last iTunes or Apple Podcast review was one star, misogynist. All caps.
1: In all caps. Yeah, which I take it was referring to you. So that should be. Yeah. I
0: <laughs> don't think so. I've like, in fact, quite the opposite. But you know, you know I'll I'll embrace it for the purposes of getting to yeah. uh, invite uh, to I mean, the thought criminals club.
1: It's elite. It's elite. I, I don't know where this will get me in, but I still think that Kanye West is one of the best producers ever. <laughs> so that would be in my. <laughs> uh, you know. And he's
0: right about the Jews. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that actually will work. That fans. won't work. Okay, yeah. then I have a I have a real yeah. <laughs> a, a real one. That, no, gonna... you're not allowed to say anything bad
1: about Israel. To get <laughs> no, like, you know, that's not uh, well. You know, you know the, uh, see, Here's one. I, uh this is foreshadowing, this is a little foreshadowing, this is a very bad wizard's prophecy.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't think diversity stat- statements really help that much for diversity.
0: <laughs> that is, wow. Um, <laughs> like, you, you're you probably already getting a text right now from
1: Pamela. I, I, I feel like, uh, like, like there are a ton of people who are just using chat GPT exclusively to write their diversity statements when they apply for jobs. I think like if you
0: totaled up the people yeah. in the United States and Canada who think that diversity statements do.
1: Um, like that they're, the kind of, of, that they're like a, like a solution. Yeah, an like, effective
0: <laughs> way of addressing diversity issues. It would be like less than 100.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like you would have to be a real like you have to you would have to be like this is a secret ballot. Nobody yeah. can ever know. Um, it's it's in that
0: category of thing like land acknowledgements where nobody really goes to bat for it. Nobody really, it's just nobody really feels like it's worth yeah, uh, making a, b- a big fuss against it either but that's you, right unlike some of these things with those two it's like i i don't know i i have a, i know a lot of people who would otherwise believe things like that that even they think the diversity statements are kind of bullshit
1: yeah it's true it's sort of just like a, well can it hurt you know like what's right. the what's the <laughs> i guess maybe it makes people think about it for a second <laughs> when they type it into chat gpt <laughs>
0: But but actually not thinking it's effective versus being willing to just say that could get you to the thought <laughs> criminals. That's right. I, I feel like I have something, and I don't mean to exclude you, but I am the stepson of Christina Hoff Sommers. <laughs> I, I I didn't ask her. I meant to ask her before this. Like she she might have gone to one of these things. <laughs>
1: This is a really good pick on your part because it really exonerates you from anything. Like you, you don't have to like you. you you're not laying it out there. You're not saying anything controversial. You're just appealing to your familial relation.
0: That's how it works. <laughs> or, you know, like in the old days, like you just had to be the son or daughter of somebody, and the, you know this that is was all you needed. Like, now you need, you know, you need to be like Thai Filipino. Um, <laughs> And trans to just get an acting job
1: you got you want legacy admissions for the uh for the uh thought criminal cl- for the cl- dinner club, club. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, so beat that
1: oh man that that one's a hard one to beat i I have some that i I don't know if they're controversial enough but um i but I feel like maybe in some circles uh this is controversial i I believe that online petitions don't matter at all. <laughs> <And I> say, <laughs> I, I don't, that's not something that gets you canceled, though. No, but, the, but this is a, we're, we're trying to build a well rounded application. So I feel like stuffing stuffing my CV. Yeah, with that's some padding your CV. <laughs> right? Exactly, padding. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I, I feel like you're,
0: um, this is a little too anodyne to get you into. Oh, it problem. says the
1: guy who said, oh, my mom's Christina off Summers. Let's well, see. You have some skin. in the have game. to like
0: you know. You're gonna have to like. I. You're right. It's not fair. Like. <laughs> put some, get some skin okay i can be out. like i don't like qr codes <laughs> on menus like uh and they'll be like well he's christina hoff summers as, uh, right. kid so like <laughs> we'll edit right. in. Yeah.
1: edit out everything i said and put i am a co-host of a podcast who, who uh, with a guy whose stepmom is <laughs> christina hoff <Summers. laughs> and you've had or you could even just say I've, I've had her a on my podcast. Oh, yeah. But I've given a talk at AEI, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How's That's that? big.
0: That's, <laughs> <laughs> you might get in over me with that. I've never given a talk at AEI. What else you We got? know somebody who really we know and like somebody who really does want to get invited to this. <laughs> um, so maybe that could help us. Because actually, like, I would blow my brains out before going to one of these things. I, this is exactly the kind of thing that I can't stomach at all.
1: I wouldn't blow my brains out. It's not the I can't. I mean, I'm I'm no fan. It's not the idea of the club that makes me uh, want to never go to this. It's the thought of who I would be talking to there, <laughs> like the the comedian who says that he can't get a job because he's white. Like that just yeah. seems boring.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's whiny. The whole thing yeah. is just whining, just yeah. to say like. They've become exasperated with the rampant, censorious
1: thinking. Like, just shut the fuck up. Nobody's... Uh, the irony of you telling them to shut the fuck up while saying that nobody's censoring them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. <laughs> and there's a certain irony in getting really annoyed at them in the same way they get annoyed at overly woke people. Yes. Uh, I get it.
1: There's accusation. There's levels. There's levels and levels of accusation yeah okay i have a serious question if you like had a club like this Mm. and somebody said hey i'm a reporter from the new yorker like i'd like to write you up like would you say yes yes because presumably i would be proud of what i was
0: doing (laughs) and think it was cool even if it's not right like i would think it was right so um yeah like if you know like the new york times uh said hey uh we we you know, we've heard about your podcast. It's kind of blowing up. Shouldn't you guys? Uh, you want you guys Mind if we do a profile of you? And then they do a profile, and it's really cringy. That's true. Uh, That's you true. know, like these two older academics.
1: Yeah, um, I, I see you trying to say white. It's okay, you can call me white adjacent. I, I, that's that's the label that I'm going to... You know. Yeah, it's like, we would still think it was cool, you know? That's true, and maybe at at, at the receipt of the first draft, we would nervously text the authors <laughs> to try to make it less cringy. I do feel like I have people in my life
0: who, if it was really embarrassing, would tell me, and I'm not sure if Pamela Pareski has that.
1: No, yeah. She's... Yeah. Um, Weirdly She's hot. weirdly
0: hot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, are, have you exhausted uh, your your reasons?
0: <laughs> I, th- I I've said this before, but I think it's funny when Trump calls Elizabeth Warren <laughs> Pocahontas. So. I thought that I thought that one uh, about you that that, yeah.
1: that you could claim that you think Trump is funny, yeah, um, <clears throat> or, or at least sometimes, like
0: almost to the point where maybe it would be <laughs> do not Don't say it. <laughs> there we go. Uh, 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 hold on, I'm getting a call right now. Chelsea, <laughs> <laughs> <Jealousy laughs> uh, New York City. All right, let's come back to discuss the meaning of texts. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Let me ask you a question: How much time do you spend on yourself in a given week? And how much time do you spend on other people? And and how do you balance those two things? It's easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs. You know, that's like me. I just give, 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 give. And everybody, my family, uh, Pizarro, they just take, take, take. Uh, Some of the people in question might disagree with that characterization, but of course they would, right? Here's the thing, though. When we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched way too thin and burnt out. Uh, Arguably, I think this is what in the Murakami story is happening in part with the protagonist. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. Therapy has helped so many people that I know learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries. Therapy empowers people to be the best version of themselves So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp, as always, for sponsoring this episode. back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we love to express our gratitude. Not to the Boston Celtics who, recording this, unlike the opening segment, right after Game 7. Just a disgraceful performance to not show up, to, to have a chance to come back from 3-0 and then not show up it, at all. Just lay a big, giant, rotten, stinky egg That was tough to take. But you know it isn't tough to take? All the interaction that we get from our listeners. Um, we appreciated it so much. The emails, the tweets, the Reddit discussions. Just support on Instagram and Facebook. It's all great. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all of our emails and wish we could get back to more than the few that we have a chance to reply to. Uh, You can tweet us at Tamler, at peas, at verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. And you can join the Reddit community where there's uh, often uh, a lot of good discussion happening over there. Oh, and you can follow me on Letterboxd. Just search for me with my name. I'm easy to find. I've been putting up reviews, rating movies. It's the one kind of social media I can get behind. And, you know, this would really help us out a lot if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's really fun for us to read and also it's a great way for other listeners to find us who may not know about us and word of mouth, telling your friends, all of that is so great and we really appreciate that. If you would like to to support us in even more tangible ways you can go to our website our new website and you can see the various ways of supporting us Uh, you can send us a one-time or recurring donation on paypal you can buy some swag don't buy the bootleg swag that we just saw that was out there Um, you can uh, join our patreon community and we have a ton of good stuff coming there right now at the various different tiers. Uh, all patrons get ad-free episodes. Um, if you're at the $2 and up per episode tier, you get access to our bonus episodes, including our long-running Ambulators series. We are about to record one of those tonight. You'll also get uh, a bonus episode I just recorded with the, the Lynch gang, the... Well, yeah, we said we weren't going to call us ourselves that. The Doppelgangers, Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington. We just did a shockingly coherent discussion of Inland Empire and it was a really fun discussion. And I look forward to putting that out as well. You have Dave's podcast Psych, which has a few episodes left, I believe, and he gives early access to those. At the $5 and up tier, you get to vote on a topic for the listener-selected episode, and we'll have a call for ideas up shortly. And uh, you get our Brothers mini miniseries, another thing we're very proud of here at Very Bad Wizards headquarters. And finally, at the $10 and up tier, you can uh, ask us a question, and every month we will answer all of your questions in video form and then we also released the audio form to everybody at the bonus level so those have been a lot of fun we really enjoy those questions although on the last one someone almost broke up the podcast that's all all I'm going to say thank you so much everybody it's because of you and not because of the Celtics that I feel happy and in a good mood well that would be a stretch in a somewhat good mood today Thanks, everybody. Now let's get back to the episode.
1: Okay, so let's move on to our uh, main topic. As Tamler, you said at the beginning, um, on this podcast, pretty much from the beginning, we've talked about movies and we've we've moved on to short stories and books. And in many of those discussions, we've found ourselves talking about in a sort of meta sense, whether or not the way we're analyzing uh, the work of art was correct and what it would mean that it's correct. And I think most of the time, We've both endorsed a notion that there's no easy answer, especially when it comes to the question of the intentions of the author or the director, whatever the writer is. So what a director or an author says the meaning is would be just one interpretation among many. Um, And I think one of the most salient uh, versions of this that I remember in recent episodes was when we discussed Kubrick's 2001 and we got some responses from people saying like, just read the book, right? Like that that you would have the whole answer right there. Um, So at least for me, I've always wanted to try to have a discussion that focused centrally on this specific question, like how much of interpretation in art boils down to knowing the intentions of the artist. And it turns out that that there's just actually like a lot, a lot of scholarship on the topic, and it's something that that we're probably just going to barely touch the surface of. But it was set off for me really by thinking about, of all things, a video essay by a YouTuber named Thomas Flight, who uh, has an essay that we'll link to about his interpretation of Scorsese's film The Irishman and a particular shot in that film. Uh, that he believed was a direct reference to Goodfellas. And then it turns out Scorsese denies it. So that's kind of what got me uh, to want to think about it. I shared it with you. And so we read a few articles that we'll talk about, but I wanted to lay just the broadest of groundwork for the various views that people have expressed, like in the philosophy of aesthetics and in literary criticism. So as you might expect, there's one class of thinking that says, it's called intentionalism, that just says, there is a one-to-one relationship between the meaning of a text and what the author intends that meaning to be. So it's like settling a bet. You want to know what the meaning of this was? Like Just ask the person who wrote it or the person who directed it or whatever. <clears throat> and then on the other side, you have like a class of views that uh, could be referred to as anti-intentionalism. And this is the most extreme of these is the view that actually the intentions of the artist matter not at all. That that uh, there's varieties of this, but one view is that once the artwork is produced, it's out in the world and it belongs to everybody and there is no reason to appeal to the intentions of of the author. This is sometimes referred fam- like sometimes referred to as the death of the author, which is the name of an essay that we'll we'll talk yeah. about. And some so some people have referred to thinking that intentions matter or are central to analysis as the intentional fallacy. So this is uh, uh, from a, a philosopher, Beardsley, who wrote an article called "The Intentional Fallacy. He says, Judging a poem is like judging a pudding or a machine. One demands that it work. It is only because an artifact works that we infer the intention of the artificer. A poem can be only through its meaning, yet it is, it simply is, in a sense that we have no excuse for inquiring what part is intended or meant. So just like a machine it's just out there like it do- either it works or it doesn't and a piece of art should be like that and uh the thought is that the author really some people have argued the making art so author centric is a mistake so those are the two extremes and there's a bunch of middle ground but yeah. maybe that's a good place to start to talk about uh, about this
0: yeah and i want to tie it maybe to some examples yeah That might be familiar to listeners and to us. Like, So one example I thought we could focus on is the Juilliard scene in Tar. And I think we all kind of came to the interpretation that that couldn't be taken literally at face value. This is clearly being filtered through kind of an older person's fears and anxieties about... Gen Z and uh, identity politics. And I really do think that's like, I I don't find it credible to think, to just take it as a clumsy way of presenting, you know, a scene at Juilliard or something like that. But what if Todd Field came out and he was interviewed about that and asked about it. And he's like, no, I'm telling you <laughs> these kids these days. You know, <laughs> right. And I was just trying to represent that. So essentially just laying bare that that's actually what, like he did mean it to be taken at face value. Like on the yeah. one hand, you don't want to say that just settles the question. But on on the other hand, I'm not tempted to say it's irrelevant yeah. either. And so I think this is where it becomes very complicated, and it's hard to go full on in one camp
1: or the other. Yeah. So, so there are these mild, like the these more moderate, like moderate forms of intentionalism um, that I gravitate to, but it is hard to to flesh out some of these. But you know, I'll give you. So there's a a good quote from one of the articles that we read which your example sort of gets to, which is like, why is this important? So the author says, conclusions about meanings are often relevant to judgments concerning the artist's achievement. Someone who tries to write a straightforward, unambiguous story, but ends up writing something that everyone reads as involving a complex rhetoric of unreliable narration may have written something fascinating to read, but this person's work should not be prized as the artistic achievement of devising an unreliable narration." We want an interpretive theory that is attuned to the difference between glorious serendipity and unfortunate failures, as well as the differences between the skillful realization of valuable and difficult aims and the routine realization of lowly or mediocre goals. Yeah.
0: I, and, I mean, I agree with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It made me think of things like The Room, right? Like the notoriously terrible movie The Room that has a cult following and that – uh uh, what's his name? The, the director, um, Tommy Wiseau, Uh, Tommy Wiseau has releasing it and having all of this attention, especially with the the artist movie that was done about it, has tried to, to claim that all along he meant it as, as a form of parody (laughs) when that's a clear case where I'm like, no, you can't like, no, the intention that you had when you did it actually matters to me. Like whether or not, uh, uh, society has analyzed it as some sort of statement about whatever you know i had that
0: in my notes too. the room i think because of the no coward quote uh ed wood would have been a better director if he said that his films were uh, parodies or if he thought about and i don't know maybe that's true but i don't know if the movies would be better or worse because of that and same with the room like well, like, I think people who I it's not my thing. Like I, I just like, I did watch parts of it when the James Franco movie about it came out <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, OK, really <laughs> incompetently performed to right. an, with a lot of confidence. And I get why people enjoy that. But it's not exactly for me. Uh, I, I don't like whether he meant to it to be that way or not is kind of irrelevant, I feel like, in terms of my aesthetic appreciation for it anyway. But I don't know. Do you disagree with that?
1: Um, I mean, that's such a clear-cut case of incompetence. I mean, the better example is the one that you gave about Tar, where if, if he had written this in a sort of heavy-handed, like, kids these days way, and we knew that, um, I wouldn't want to praise him for that subtleness that we ended up interpreting. Um,
0: Right, right. Uh, Yeah, and so maybe this gets to like a kind of fundamental question when, um, you know, having just done a quick dive into this literature, when they talk about the meaning of the work, I feel like it's not totally clear what that is supposed to signify do we does that even make sense like to talk about the meaning of a work because in talking about tar or wiseau it's like you're you're not talking about the meaning of it exactly but you wouldn't want to praise the director for doing something more subtle and nuanced than the director was actually trying to do that seems to me different than the meaning of what he was trying to do but that's just because but but not because i have a theory of what the meaning of a work is as much as, uh, like, I'm not sure if that's what we're interested in, the meaning, when we try to interpret texts.
1: The way that we've been using the meaning is this broader uh, interpretation of, like, the goals of the entire work of art. I think maybe it's easier to to talk about... Not the goals, because the goals make it sound like
0: there's an intender, but so... Or like, know, the, like just
1: the the broad like just let's say the the very broad interpretation of the the work. like yeah. I just mean to contrast it, uh, with some clear instances where you can get into some of this debate about intentionalism or not. When you say, for instance, like the the oranges in The Godfather symbolize death, right? Um, that meaning, like the direct symbolic value of an orange, you might say, well, does Coppola? Say that they symbolize death, and right. question settled. Or you could say, as some people have said, yes, um, intentions matter, but Coppola doesn't even quite know his intentions because you adopt some sort of Freudian view of of what's going on, and so like Coppola might not be privy to his own intentions here, or you might just say. No, Coppola chose oranges because there were orange trees in the sets that he was filming. And uh, it is our culture that has, uh, that has taken this to be uh, uh, a meaningful symbol. So, so meaning in this very local sense, I think, makes this.
0: So then the question is, does that word capture uh, something about the interpretive process? So if you're talking about the oranges in The Godfather... If he really didn't, you know, as far as he can tell, you you give him sodium pentothal, he's like, no, I mean, it would have oranges. I always thought, you know, I like oranges. So I had I, I guess I wrote it that he picked up the oranges before he got shot. That's like, okay. does that mean that we can't we can no longer after all this time look at the oranges in that way? No, I don't think so, you know, c- and because for one thing, like you said, who knows? Maybe there is something that he's picking on yeah. at a more archetypical kind of subconscious level. Number one. Number two, as the, he's, they say in this uh, Irishman video that you alluded to, maybe it was someone on the set that just yeah. decided to put oranges um, and, and their vision is part of the collaborative process of of, of what that work of art is. And number three, it's, and I think this is the big thing. And I think of all the kinds of theories that I skimmed through today, this reader response kind of account where it yeah. also matters how we, uh, within the culture compared to other works of art in that, like how, how that comes across also matters. All these things matter. I think the, wh- where, maybe some of these approaches go wrong is to try to exclude one of these categories of things from something called the all things considered meaning of the work. It just seems like it's all kind of relevant. How much it's relevant, how much you take it into account will depend on the the particular work in question. But you wouldn't want a theory that just says, no, this is actually... The meaning and all this other stuff is irrelevant.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why, like, I like you, am attracted to this sort of moderate level of intentionalism. Like, like Thomas Flight in that video essay says, if you wanted to say that the parasite that parasite was a defense of capitalism, like, I just think you're wrong, right? Like, no, yeah. there's no a celebration, it, of a celebration of capitalism. Celebration of capitalism, then, then you just think you're wrong, but. <clears throat> They're, why I, they're
0: wrong is a, that's the question.
1: Yeah, and so with like, the, it's not just because he didn't mean it that way. Well, it's weird because because he didn't mean it that way, he didn't create a film in, in which that is obvious, right? So some people right. have argued it's a silly debate because let's if the intentions are what create the meaning that uh, of the work, then then all you need is the work because presumably the intentions are there, um, and to which people have said. Well, what if he's an incompetent communicator of his intentions? Um, which leads me to this. I don't know if you saw this. As I, I, I read a blog post where somebody argued that John Woo's movie Face Off mm-hmm. um, is actually, uh, <laughs> while John Woo meant it as a serious like like film, uh, yeah. John Travolta and Nicolas Cage's performance as like actually good actors made it into a completely different film so when Champy you kind yeah, of you know, and yeah and two two artists who are two actors who are so good at camp as a style of acting uh, made it into something that John Woo never meant it to be right And this is why the case of film is actually like very interesting to me because this whole debate has usually focused on a singular author where you could just say, um, you know, what did Edgar Allan Poe, did he really think that, that this symbolized that, like, do we have any letters that he wrote and you could, you, you might be tempted to look at that in a work of art, like a movie, you have such a collection of intentions. You have the the director, you have the actors, you have the cinematographers, you have the editors who actually like make these critical judgments that, that might completely change the way that a work of art is interpreted. And I do think that our interpretation, like not to get hung up on meaning, but just say well, however you interpret, uh, like even at a, at a concrete level, interpret what's going on, uh, you you can't help but try to figure out what the person was trying to say. Like, it's almost just like a, just a natural human response to try to figure out at first pass. Like, so why did it, why did she do that? Right? Like, I I don't, I'm not sure if I agree with you. Well, I'm not making a normative claim. I'm making like, I'm saying like the psychology of human beings is such that when you're trying to interpret something, I feel like your gut is always going to be like, why? Like, what did they mean? What? What's like? It's not like a piece of nature, right? This is we know that somebody intended to create this work of art. So it seems like a very, like, gut level reaction to say, why did they create this piece of art? But I think it depends on the work, the type of work, what
0: it is. I don't think we necessarily are desperate to do that about a poem or uh, like a painting or. Um, you don't you think know, we want to
1: know immediately the intentions of a poet when he when they write. Uh, a poem. When I'm
0: interested Mm. if I, you know, hear something that uh, might put it in some kind of context, but my first instinct isn't to say, like, what did they mean? What What were they trying to do? I don't know if this is that different, but I'm often trying to figure out, like, what is the work doing? And why am I responding to it this way? But that doesn't automatically go to the intentions of the author. Sometimes it does. I feel like with Borges, I... You know, uh, there's certain things where we want to know what he means, but there's certain other things, like we're talking about Garden of Forking Paths, and whether that's a fever dream or whether it's, uh, you know, a, 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 a recollection or uh, a more literal telling of what's happening. I wasn't desperate. I-, I don't feel like the first thing we were trying to figure out in our discussion is, well, what did Borges think? Did he think this was a fever dream or did he, you know, like it's it's like, what is the work trying to tell us more than what is what did the author mean when he was doing it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I get what you're saying. I just think that that you're taking for granted that like you're going to that next step, but like what it means that somebody created a work is that they created it. And so we often move right past that step, right? Where we say We'll often say, well, whether or not Borges himself intended this, like this means this to me, or I think that this can be interpreted. that. But all work has a creator, so I, I like just saying I'm interested in what the work says. I think is just uh, s- semantically equivalent to saying what does the what does the author say. I I disagree because
0: I think, and this gets to some of the criticisms of the intentionalists, like there's certain, there are certain parts of a work where I don't care like what personal reason the author had for, for doing it. You know, uh, you know, maybe it's something that happened in their childhood or something like that, that they're recreating. And that's what, you know, led them to put that thing in. It's like, okay, maybe that's interesting. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But it's not, certainly not the central thing I'm trying to figure out.
1: I mean, you're strawmanning me. Like, my only claim here at the very beginning was that it is a very natural thing to ask, like, oneself when presented with something, any artifact, like, what did the person who made it mean? Not that, like, you can't immediately move past that, but, like, that it is one of the questions that arises when you're watching is, like, uh, you, like it seems weird that you're denying you pushing back on that
0: well we had to we have to rewind to the tape but i thought you were making a stronger claim than just it's one of the things that you ask yourself um
1: in like a in like a uh when you see a, an animate thing like walking around you immediately think what's it trying to do or when someone utters a statement like you're trying to figure out like, what is the, what is the per- person's intention in saying this thing? Like, that's all I mean, right. Where, where it's just too hard to teach. Like we even impute intentionality on things that, that like are created, generated by computers. I'm just, Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm saying, it's just like a, we're very loose with this. I think that's why the anti-intentionalist stance is uh, the counterintuitive one for so many people. Like, I think it takes some work to remove yourself from from this view. Like, I think that the person just starting out trying to figure out, like, how to uh, digest art is often asking, oh, what do they mean, right? Okay. Yeah. They're often asking that. But I don't take it
0: as determinative of meaning, if I can even make sense of that. And I think that sometimes it's going to be a lot more interesting than others. And sometimes it'll be a lot more, I don't know, it'll influence my own way of understanding the text. And other times it it won't be completely irrelevant, but it won't be uh, that's it might not be that significant either. That's all.
1: I mean it's maybe like we a, don't disagree. Yeah. It's like very like that's what I would conclude, right? Like, but so so I take it that the strongest anti-intentionalist views that say, um once the author releases it into the world it is just as valid like the the for instance like a strong reader response view it's your personal history like your cultural upbringing your idiosyncratic like uh, uh desires and and preferences when you interpret this like if if you think uh um uh, starship troopers is actually a patriotic take on something like you know you think this is like a real feel-good patriotism movie um and the director says no this was satire right you know he doesn't
0: that's what's funny he really does he does not uh, flat out, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love it. So and that's, that's why actually I, what makes it good. That's
1: what makes it know? good. Like it is. That's why. So here's one way of saying what I was trying to say about this, the psychological primacy, like quote unquote here, is that when an artist actually speaks out about their work of art, I feel like it fucks it up because so many people will naturally just like, Oh, that's what it is then. Right. Yeah. Like, they'll feel like they've been... Like I I was saying at the beginning, like it's bet-settling.
0: Yeah, and it will... I do think that part of the fun of appreciating art, talking about it, like, a lot of the stuff that we've done on this podcast. And I, I like to try to do more and more teaching is it's, it's kind of a creative process to try to understand it and to come up with an interpretation and come up with fruitful ways of exploring it. And then, yeah, if a, if a artist will come out and just say, no, that's stupid. Actually, what I meant was this, and it's very straightforward. It just, yeah, it kind of, again, it's not that you can ignore it, but it does, take away from the richness of the aesthetic experience, I think, when that happens. And can I give an example? And I want to know what you think about this. So take Ecclesiastes, um, a text that we have discussed. And I also just wonder in general whether biblical texts and mythic texts are in their own category when it comes to something like this. But I don't think either of us, as we're, talking about that work are just like, what did they mean by this? Um, As much, it's not that we don't want to know, but if there was some explanation about, well, you know, it's the king at this time trying to consolidate control over some region, like, that's not what we want to know. No. We, were like, we are looking at that text as a text, partly because we don't know. We, it has no author yeah. as a lot of these mythic texts. Like We don't know anything about how it was written or what happened. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like I feel like that's a good example of a kind of text where you just approach as text. And even though you could ask yourself stuff, as biblical scholars do, they try to really come up with uh, some historical fact that can account for... Uh, some of these beautiful passages. But then I always find that to just be uh, almost a distraction at that point from yeah, the like interpretation and appreciation of the...
1: Right. So there's like analyses of the book of Revelation and all its like crazy kooky symbols that are like, actually, this is really tied to the politics of the day. Like this was like a mm-hmm. very local satire or not satire, but a criticism of Rome um, at the time. And sure, that takes away from it. But but I think that that I am I'm not even saying that I, like i'm i'm trying to make a much more basic claim which is like for example to use to use ecclesiastes when like the at the end it says oh and and the king said like yeah. you know love god with all your heart and that's the <laughs> follow point follow the laws yeah. and yeah because like, he's always judging i immediately said that's not what that person meant and that's the kind of meaning that i'm talking about like like a literal like the like the the person who wrote that was trying to communicate something that I think is deep and beautiful. And sure. The text is like, I don't need to be thinking of the author while I'm reading it. But immediately when you get to that end, I'm like, well, that's not what the author was trying to say. Like,
0: and that was probably tacked
1: on. Yeah. Which is,
0: or at least that's one way of right. thinking about it. And um, yeah. So, and it matters, yeah. right? If, if, you somehow we were to learn. No, no, no. That was always throughout the writing of it thought of to be the end. That's what the, the author was building towards. <laughs> yeah. You know then it would, it would be, be like it was
1: poorly executed,
0: right? Like All right. <laughs> that I would feel sad. I would feel <laughs> like I would feel like I feel like the work is a, maybe a little diminished, even though which means I'm not a hypothetical uh whatever yeah, intentionalist, intentionalist. In other words, I don't have to create my fictional Person. um yeah. uh, But I, the one thing that in these more moderate views, I do think it matters whether learning about the author's intent is going to be more fruitful in terms of your appreciation and the understanding of the text, or if it's not. Like that is ultimate. And so, uh, yeah me saying that makes me think i think there's something that the the real thing that we're after is a fruitful interpretation that allows us to appreciate the text in more depth and often maybe certainly sometimes the author's intent is a big part of that but sometimes it is isn't. sometimes we have no sense of the author's intent and sometimes it might even actually detract from a more fruitful interpretation of the text, uh, to know that. And then if that happens, then I'm thinking, well, like, I'm not, I can't unhear th- that, that, the author said it, but I'm not going to let that govern what I take to be the meaning of the text. Yeah. From my understanding of it.
1: That's where I, I absolutely agree. And in fact, like I, I have as radical a view as I say I have, um, in the yeah. sense that, that, uh, there are often, I think, works of art, that i'm trying to think of a good example like th- this isn't a real example but the thundercats cartoon from the 80s right you could uh you could say well look if you look at all these characters um these were all like symbolizing something like pretty crazy about like society in the 80s and I, it actually doesn't matter to me at all whether like the authors might have had like a real simple, like, let's make a kid's cartoon where this guy is the insecure one and this guy is the leader and, and this one is like the the asshole. And that was it. And so like the, the intentions of the author are super straightforward and kind of simplistic. And then I read this complex stuff into it. I don't think I'm making an error at all. I think and it's not even because i think that deep inside the authors was this complexity and it came out in some like sort of freudian way or or just because they were immersed in the culture and they couldn't help but but have this meaning i actually mean that um it like to answer directly what you said like it, i almost never would want to know what the, <laughs> the author intended yeah. right um, and I think it's we, uh, yeah, right. And, and if it's going to detract from appreciation of the art uh, um, and analysis of the art, then I think it's you're worse off knowing the intentions. And I think that's just often the case. And we've talked uh, about songs uh, on this podcast a few times where there is no way that I want to know for most songs who the person was thinking of or like what the situation was they're thinking because then it's lost its universality and my personal meaning, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. That indicates, I think, that there's more abstract kinds of art. And I think movies are often in this category. Songs, definitely. It's not a hard and fast rule, but typically... Authors' intentions there mean less, or could actually be a disadvantage. And then there are certain other things, uh, maybe philosophy, maybe uh, certain kinds of novels, anyway, where it would actually help to understand the context that they're writing in. And um, and and I really do think it depends. And the I think yeah. where any th- they all just go wrong is in trying to come up with some hard and fast general rule of interpretation uh, where I don't think that's how this works.
1: It can't. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It can't can't. possibly be that um, because there there are some cases like the straightforward case of just speech acts like you and I talking to each other right now. Like it really matters that I know what you intended to say even if yeah. your words are slurred or if you have a malapropism or whatever, like I'm like, well, did Tamler mean to say that? Um, uh, you think
0: my words are slurred? <laughs> Only Am I sometimes. slurring?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then you get to, to these, like, uh, like, even within the same genre, like a, a documentary film could either be one in which I really want to know, like what was the point of, what argument is the author trying to make? and there are some like exits through the gift shop where i'm like i revel in the like mystery of what they really meant. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: we could do exit we
1: through should, the gift did, shop. Did we not? Here's a yeah. qu- here's a question that i uh, have for you. If you know the well of course you know the two roads diverged in a in a wood poem the uh, the road the path less traveled. What's the name of the Robert the Frost road poem? the road less traveled. traveled. Um mm. so Frost himself was annoyed because people interpret he, – he said that most people took it as some sort of like some proclamation of individualism. Like I am, I'm acting against the, the crowd when in reality he meant to only like talk about the great regret of having to choose between two, two roads or whatever. So you could say that people who think of this as some expression of individualism are wrong because Robert Frost told us that that's not what he meant. I think the more fruitful thing and I think what Frost was really saying is no but if you read the poem closely you'll see that that can't be <laughs> the mm. interpretation exactly. right so, exactly yeah.
0: that's what I was trying to say yeah. when we were having
1: our disagreement at the first you know yeah yeah and and so so yeah there might be just a small distinction between like me having just meant his intentions have been infused in the poem like if he did it well like we should we should not need to query him ever right This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by my favorite virtual private network, VPN. That is NordVPN. A virtual private network essentially creates an encrypted tunnel to let your data flow through. It allows you to have better security, better privacy, keeps prying eyes of your ISPs, for instance, from knowing where you've been, but it also can make it appear as if you are in any geographical location by altering the IP address that it looks like you're coming from. And that's really where I and my family have used it the most. We got a free trial when we started doing NordVPN, but I have been paying out-of-pocket for membership ever since because it's that useful. It's fast, it's easy to use, you can connect with one click or you can even enable auto-connect. It has over 5,700 servers across 60 countries, so you can find the server that's nearest you to get better speed and you can easily use it by installing the app on up to six devices on windows android ios mac even linux even android tv now supports nord vpn i'll give you my use case so my daughter is now attending college in a country that is not the united states and we have subscriptions to all of our streaming services but of course she doesn't get the same access that she does uh here at home so she's easily able to use nordvpn on her tablet on her ipad or usually on her iphone or even her laptop and is able to watch all of the programs that she started watching here right there where she is we have never had an issue with speed or connection when it comes to nordvpn and that's why i continue paying for it so if you think that a VPN is something that you might be able to use or find handy, you can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com vbw. Once again, that's nordvpn.com vbw. You get extra months, and you'll get a 30-day money back guarantee by using that promo code. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards.
0: Let me uh try to steel man the other side here. The strong intentionalist, you mean? Yeah, yeah, the strong intentionalist. So I I was thinking of Strauss and Straussianism and esoteric readings and stuff like that as a kind of boogeyman here of the you know anti-intentionalist that it's like maybe in some ways paradigmatic. Like Strauss from what I understand they they would go to certain texts like Plato's Dialogues and Descartes and they would kind of decode it. They would find hidden meanings, esoteric readings that were guided by certain principles. um, Like they always thought uh, it was how authors were able to express themselves under Conditions of political persecution, and that these texts were like there, there, all these little symbols and little ways that uh, they were just sending out for the world and for all time. People who were smart enough to be able to understand right. what those, <laughs> and it's in some ways, in that sense, a fairly reductive and I think implausible approach. But man. this is the thing that kind of passion of interpretation and the attention they pay to texts. And the thing, even though I don't agree with this view of literature at all, I will read some of their analyses of a Plato dialogue or, or, uh, you know, like Rousseau or uh, some novel. And it's like Fucking interesting. Like I I don't agree with it. I like I think the political persecution part is borderline silly, but like just taking that attitude of uh like a highly theoretical approach to a text does end up even if it's fundamentally misguided, bringing out a kind of richness that you might not get if you didn't come at it that systematically. And similarly about some of the death of the author, Post structuralist, Derrida, you know, Poucault. like, yeah, they, they, like, maybe you disagree with them at the fundamental philosophical level, but they come up with some good shit about the text <coughs> sometimes. And that's probably a result of just their highly
1: theoretical ambitions approaching it. So is, uh, see, I thought you were going t- to, Say conclude with your example that isn't this like almost just like a clear case in which it's gone too far? But you're saying no, they actually find things that are that are actually valuable, um,
0: because they're they have this misguided approach mm -hmm. that is overly theoretical, but that bears fruits as well.
1: Yeah, Uh, you know, it like I guess it depends on like what your goal is in doing this stuff because. What you were saying, like, I don't know anything about that Straussian school, but psychoanalytic literary criticism is just that as well, where mm-hmm. it is, I, I think, almost certainly mostly wrong, um, but nonetheless pretty fucking interesting. I mean, imagine that the artist was—I think I have a quote about this very thing, okay? It's not quite this, but it's a—, a Uh, quote that gets at some of this it says uh, take some literary text or artistic structure that is well known and that is generally recognized as having valuable and complex meanings and imagine that we were to discover that the artist in question produced the work while acting on only some very limited semantic intentions does not modern intentionalism then have the crippling consequence of requiring us to limit our understanding of the work's original artistic meanings to the ones intended by the artist and I think that's true. Like I think that's sort of what I was saying about Thundercats, where uh, but but this is like a, taking it a step further, where you approach texts with a frame—a Marxist or psychoanalytic or whatever frame you're approaching it—and you're squeezing out meaning in a way that could most definitely be like the author themselves might be like, "What are you talking about?" But there is value to that. And I yeah. think it just depends on what your analysis is trying to do. Like, what what are you trying to... You know, like, I think that Freudian readings of Shakespearean plays are, like, super interesting. I don't think Shakespeare had any of that in mind. And I don't even buy the psychology that Freud was saying caused Shakespeare to write it. But, like, you're just like, ah, that's fucking cool. I, I, it's I, almost
0: like their obsession with this, their theoretical approach just gets them to do close, close readings that just by virtue of them being, being close, close reading. readings. Okay, but uh,
1: yeah. So that gets me to where I was. I thought you were going to take it, but where I want to take it now, which is, surely they're taking it too far. And I, I think we agree that there are cases in which people's even really, really worked out close readings of things are batshit. And I, and I take it that that's what for instance, Room 237 is all about, where you're just like,
0: well, like, clearly... Except s- the one about the native. <laughs> <laughs> Except
1: for the one, yeah, or the moon landing. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. Right. I mean, it's a great example, though, also of, they found it, they uncovered some cool shit yeah. as they're doing that, Right. you know? Right, It's both, yeah.
1: But but there has to be, like, and this is why I think they're Really, it's what, what work of art are you analyzing? What is your goal in analyzing it? Um, that all matters, but I think there is some constraint, like people in room two, three, seven, aren't, uh, making up details about the shining. Like they are actually pointing them out, but, uh, I don't want a theory that doesn't allow me to say that there, there, there's little to no value in what they're saying because it's not right. grounded in, in. I guess maybe what I'm saying is it's not even grounded within the texts. Like in the, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah,
0: I think there are better and worse interpretations. So like even if you just consider the author's intentions to be one factor among many, and you also think the reader's subjective experience of the text matters, also that doesn't mean that all readings are the same. You know where the room two three seven ones go go a little is when it's just not a plausible it's not even like it's just not a plausible reading of Kubrick's intentions certainly but most importantly of the text itself and they get a little into this in that movie actually I remember one of the people saying maybe Kubrick didn't mean this <laughs> consciously right but I think you know so he you know I think that's also true of any artists that they're not always aware of what it is that they're doing and responding to and their kind of their work are just reflections of the world in ways that they sometimes understand and sometimes don't
1: right. you know and there are uh, there are just all kinds of interesting cases for for artists to where um i guess depending on the domain where you have happy accidents that were unintended but then but then the artist uh kind of runs with it um where you know you can't have like there are some of these theories the strictest ones that say art at the time of its creation like what the artist was thinking at the moment of its creation is the only thing that matters and there you're just not allowing for for some like cool shit that happens by accident to to end up meaning something right yeah yeah i think like any artist
0: who's good is not going to be like have everything fully, consciously intended of value in their work.
1: Well, like uh, like we were just talking about Twin Peaks in our in our AUA, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> like the 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 person who, I, like, I don't even know why I'm trying to protect from spoilers for Twin Peaks, but like the person in the mirror. Um, yeah. that was just just happened to be caught in the in the mirror. Oh, Bob! Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Bob was just a set dresser. <laughs> yeah, that uh, Lynch saw, but immediately incorporated yeah. it. You know, the Twin Peaks is an interesting example because there's a very famous four and a half hour video. He to Twin Peaks unlocks Twin Peaks: The Return and all of Twin Peaks. You fire walk with me. All of that. It's by this guy, Twin Perfect. I think his name is a YouTuber. Uh, I watched parts of it. He is a little bit insufferable, like very kind of full of himself the way he presents it. It was hugely controversial in the Twin Peaks and Lynch kind of commentary community. I think some people thought he figured it out. This is what Twin Peaks is. And other people were so offended, A, by the idea that you could even do that (laughs) with something like Twin Peaks. And B, just this guy's kind of insufferable. I figured it out. Like, this is it. Let's go home now. It's done. It's the puzzle has been solved. I did this. I completed the Sudoku. And (laughs) um, what's interesting about that case was it is such a care from what I, even what I saw. And I like, I wasn't a fan, but I could tell this guy has assembled a comprehensive case that gets at some really interesting shit and even some shit where it's like well if he doesn't mean this how do you explain this aspect of it you know Um but you just also think fundamentally that's not how Lynch works, that, he, right. that there is some, like, key right. uh, that, that can crack the code of, you know, because, you know, Lynch, of all artists, is clearly somebody who, who goes with intuition. But that, all, it doesn't mean that he doesn't mean anything. It just means that it's never going to be that cut and dry and paint by numbers. But damn, did that guy <laughs> have, to, some points. Uh, have some shit in there that was, was pretty <clears throat> impressive. And so, like, it's interesting when you do that and it's you know, it feels like something that's positive, a positive way of interpreting it, when it's negative. And sometimes it's not just because the the interpretation is invalid when you go evidence by evidence, piece by piece, but it's it's more about just the general attitude or the um and also just whether that fits the artist or yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, uh, and and like respecting the text. Like someone who respects the text that much, um I'm totally on board with you. It. Yeah, it's
0: interesting. I wasn't thinking of the twin perfect guy as necessarily respecting the text played close attention to it came up with some really good points but i think maybe some of the disagreement about this guy was whether he showed sufficient respect respect to the spirit of what lynch (laughs) and (laughs) frost are trying to do
1: like i think i might have mentioned this particular uh, video that i saw not too long ago i was on a no country for old men kick and so I, i watched it and i was watching a bunch of analysis videos and there is this uh youtuber called what is anti logic who who makes a bunch of these videos interpreting movies in ways that nobody else does and he grants that like like they're they they might not be right but his video on no country for old men is trying to mount the argument that anton chigurh isn't real and the analysis of it is so good to me. Like it adds value to the story and makes me think about about the story so much that it's the fact that not everything fits with that is sort of beside the point to me. Like he has squeezed more joy out of the work of art for me. And that's what I yeah. think. And th- that's sort of like what I am led to conclude. Like when, when we write our book about the Very Bad Wizard's Guide to the Good Life That's like a firm principle that I would want in there that like the way that you approach a work of art um, really, really matters. And like squeeze squeezing all of it, the meaning and joy out of the art, even if it means that that you might get something wrong or you might be overanalyzing or somebody might accuse you of not uh, knowing what the director meant or whatever, it doesn't matter so much.
0: Yeah. And the Coens are great examples. You ask them anything about their movies and they'll be like, nah, yeah. just, uh, yeah, <laughs> just a tornado at belong. the end. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Like, yeah, you know, so that that's a part of the country where we get some uh, whirlwinds sometimes, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> like, they 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 never will betray any kind of hidden meaning, uh, and yet their movies are so full of unbelievably, oh God, man. like like precise connections. I, I would of do all no, certain yeah, kinds. I would
1: do No Country for Old Men tomorrow if you wanted yeah. to. Um, be, I'll do that. Yeah, like it's, and I I think that the artist showing that kind of restraint is. Um, is doing such a good service to the yeah. community of the to the audience. Basically, um, I asked my daughter if you could give
0: Lynch a pill and say like, and he has to answer truthfully. How do you interpret oh, the end of Twin Peaks? Would you want to do it? She's like, yeah, yeah, yes, fuck yes. Like, I want to know. And I'm not saying it means that that's right. the answer, but, but I, I want to know. Do you? Yeah yeah probably less, I think than she does, but sure, yeah, I wouldn't like delete the file if somebody <laughs> sent it to me
1: it. <laughs> it's I, I'm thinking of magic tricks that you learn the secret to and how there is always n- not always, but there's often, especially for people who aren't really into magic, like there's just this immediate disappointment. Um, and I would worry that I would give myself immediate disappointment uh because. There is this limbo where multiple interpretations exist and that brings me pleasure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't want like the the uh all of the the quantum realities to collapse into into the one true one.
0: But maybe we could conclude on this. I think like if what I believe is true, they wouldn't collapse into one. We would just have one other piece of information. Uh, I think that's definitely. I true firmly about believe that. Peaks. And this yeah, gets yeah.
1: to my point about the psychology of it, which is, yeah, I would have to just like tell myself to undo what I heard David Lynch say, because like it would yeah. it would hit me a little bit. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, there, definitely. But man, would it be fun to just okay? Let me try to go back and rewatch now with this in mind, and you know. Uh, which is another good thing about these interpretations, gives yeah. you a kind of a lens to go back and see how well it works or not, you know? And,
1: you know, uh, we had a few people say that that our discussion, even Paul himself, our discussion of Tar um, actually made the movie better for them. And uh, we don't have to be right uh, about it uh, for that to happen, um, but we also don't have to get the answer from the director. Um,
0: to, yeah. To- <laughs> That was very gratifying for me because I think that is the mark of good criticism is yeah. when you appreciate something in a way you didn't appreciate exactly. before. Totally. Yeah, that's the mark of good criticism. Yeah. So we're not critics, but <laughs> no. we sometimes play one on the pod. Do
1: you think it can work in the opposite direction that, that, uh, that movies that somebody enjoys or you could ruin with your criticism?
0: I think that's what people were worried about with the twin perfect thing. I, like, I, I don't know. Like, I find them annoying, but that doesn't. Right. Like, if I'll read a like a really stupid way of uh, trying to understand a work that I really like, it doesn't detract from the work for me. Um, well,
1: you, you have uh, yeah. actually ruined many Marvel movies for me with your attitude. <laughs> <My> pissy <laughs> attitude.
0: <laughs> sometimes a pissy attitude is the best
1: critical <laughs> approach but i do think that i'm uh pretty extreme in my views like this the most postmodern that i get yeah
0: totally a hundred percent like right.
1: uh art is just different you know like i feel like and and god bless it for being different because it's hard to like it's a dreary world where you just have to worry about, like, you know, reading academic papers, where you really are all just just hundred percent focused on what people meant and like whether the words match what they meant. Or here, yeah, you just turn that part of your mind off, and this other part of your mind just expands.
0: Yeah, one that requires imagination, and yeah,
1: I think that's why
0: we've gravitated towards a lot of
1: yeah. that. I by the way think that any artist who gives an explanation for their art is not only doing a disservice but I think that they tend to be the dumber ones. Yeah, I agree. You know? like, yeah. like why would you do that? Like <laughs> and a, and okay. like the the arrogance of it, you know? There's an interesting case where I'll let you go watch Celtics but um in the original Star Wars Han Solo and is is meeting this alien bounty hunter, and they have a shootout. And in the original, it kind of looks like Han shot him in cold blood, and um, that really added to the character of Han because like mm-hmm. he was this renegade. And when George Lucas redid the effects, he made yes. it so that Greedo, the bounty hunter, shot first, and Han shot in self-defense. And like the community was outraged, yeah. like. Han shot first was like their mantra. And yeah. that's a case where like George, I don't care what George Lucas thinks Han did. Like yeah. it's disrespecting the character that we all know. Like He would have butchered, right. Like he had
0: no right to do that. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. That's, oh, exactly. that's how it, that's yeah. how it fits. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Well, this was fun. I hope it was somewhat instructive. Uh, I have to go and take my medicine. Uh, the The tough pill. Join us next time on Very Bad Weather.
1: A very bad wizard.